It's Thursday, June 23rd, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Jonathan Mavroides, Senior Writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he's well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel, and Edison publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined by Leo Hanian, Hoover Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California On Your Mind. Uh, Good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Let's start by tackling the issue of homelessness, which is, which will be much debated in the run-up to California's elections this fall, particularly in the Los Angeles mayoral race in which billionaire real estate magnate Rick Caruso will face off against Congresswoman Karen Bass. Lee, uh, you moderated a very interesting program uh, for Hoover's Economic Policy Working Group yesterday, which featured Michael Schellenberger, author of the best-selling book, San Francisco, and who was slated as the independent gubernatorial candidate in this year's primary ballot. Uh, he was joined by Kevin Kiley, assemblyman from the Sacramento area. And during the conversation, Schellenberger basically said that homelessness was an enforcement and drug treatment issue, not a housing one. As our colleagues, Josh Rao and Jillian Ludwig wrote in their recent report, as housing for homeless has increased by 43% since 2016, unsheltered homeless in the state has risen by 45%. Um, instead of a housing first policy, Schellen- Schellenberg advocates a shelter first, treatment first and housing earned policy, which would prohibit people from living on the streets and place them in shelters on a temporary basis. Once they've completed a requisite level treatment and demonstrated the ability to live independently, they could then petition the government for housing. Uh, Schellenberg said that a single state agency should administer this process. Kylie, more, more or less in agreement, said that ballot measures that discriminalize drug use basically eviscerated prosecutors' ability to leverage the prospect of prison time to push people into drug treatment programs. Gentlemen, um, I would like to hear your overall thoughts about this conversation and what Schellenberg and Kylie proposed in solving uh, this crisis in California. Let's start with you, Lee. Yeah, uh, Jonathan, um, it was a fun hour I spent with uh, with two gentlemen who have thought a lot about California homelessness from different perspectives. Kylie is in the state assembly. Uh, he's a Republican. He is a traditional conservative, and Schellenberger is an author, a best-selling author. Um, he writes very engaging books about homelessness and also about the environment. Uh, Schellenberger, at least he was a Democrat. He would have considered himself a liberal you know, many years ago, and we, and we talked about that. We talked about his transition from being a hardcore progressive um, to becoming a political independent. Um, and as you noted, both fellows um, agreed about 90% of the time on why California's homelessness policies have completely fallen flat in their face, why we have wasted $17 billion in state money over the last three years, and what should be done about it. And at a big picture level, this goes to show that California's problems are, are not partisan political problems not in any way. These are absolutely common sense problems that I think decades ago, whether it would have been a Republican governor or a Democrat governor or a Republican state legislature or a Democrat state legislature, we would have figured out and made progress on. Um, So the obvious issue uh, that comes out is that chronic homelessness is fundamentally a mental mental health and drug abuse opioid issue, full stop. And what is very, very frustrating, and I brought this up during the conversation, is that a state report remarked that 29% of of the homeless were having either uh, emotional health or substance abuse issues. Schellenberger said, I went to these camps. I went to these homeless, I went to these tent camps. I interviewed people and he interviewed dozens of people. I think he interviewed over a hundred people. He said, I didn't meet one. (laughs) I didn't meet one who didn't have mental health and substance abuse issues, not one. And when you think about it, that seems obvious. Homelessness is not a normal state of affairs. People who have their wits about them, who have the capacity to make rational decisions, 
figure life out and did not wander the streets without a roof over their heads. And he made the very important point that California has a lot of resources available for people who have exigent circumstances and need to find a new shelter immediately for a very short period of time. We do that really very well. But what, what politicians have failed to do uh, up until very recently, and still it's, it's like, it's like uh, you know, pushing a big boulder, is to recognize that this is a substance abuse issue and we cannot, we cannot make progress until we get these people in the treatment. Bill, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I'm going to get Lee's feedback. First of all, I missed a lot of the presentation. Unfortunately, we'll get to this a little later on the podcast. We had sort of an infrastructural meltdown in Stanford the last couple of days. Uh, uh, the temperatures hit triple digits, and sure enough, a fire broke out just north of campus. Electricity went out on the campus, eventually took down my Wi-Fi, and just welcome to summertime in California, guys. But uh, uh, no, here's what I want to get at here. Uh, we look at housing and what drives this uh, conversation in seems to me, Lee, is money, plain and simple. We talk about how much money we're throwing at the problem. And I don't know if money is really a solution here. We're about to spend $300 billion on our budget. Um, CalMatters wrote a very clever piece about this the other day, took $300 billion and said, what does that mean to Californians? $300 billion means every Californian would get a $7,500 vacation if you divvied up the pie among 39 million people. Uh, uh, $300 billion is enough to buy 6.2 million Tesla Models 3. Uh, that would cover every individual in California between the ages of 25 and 34. Uh, I think Jonathan gets one, Lee. I'm sorry, you and I are out, my friend. Uh, $300 billion is twice the uh, double the amount of federal student loan in California. So it's a staggering amount of money. But money is not the answer here. And here I'd refer you to a, a column in the Los Angeles Times, May 31st, 2022. The headline, and this is just typical of the mindset, California has billions. Why is homelessness still a, a problem? And if you deep, go deep into that column, Lee and Jonathan, you find this rather remarkable quote uh, from a Newsom housing advisor by the name of Jason Elliott, who probably shouldn't have said this, but here's what he said, quote, why can't we fix the prison system? Why can't we make California's K through 12 education system the best in the world? Why can't we once and for all address drought and clean water and so on and so forth, Elliott said, quote, I'm making a point, which is to say the crises that we face are not limited to homelessness. Homelessness may be arguably the most visible or the most in your face or the most you interact with most viscerally on a daily basis. My point here, Lee, is that California is fraught with crises, as Gavin Newsom's advisor himself um, has just confessed to, but just chunking millions of dollars to this problem, what, $12 billion proposed last year. I think the governor slapped on another $900 million when the uh, May surplus was put out. But money money alone is not the solution, Lee. So you talked to Kylie about this. You talked to Schellenberger. What would they do beyond just chunk billions of dollars at it? Yeah, Bill, Bill at some level, ironically, um, Throwing more money at the problem seems to make the problem worse from the standpoint that if those spending the money and lacking accountability know that future lacking of accountability means more dollars, um, then performance is just worse. Um, and our performance has been abysmal. So both talked about $17 billion in state funding, and that's not counting the funding that's going on in, uh, in, local, uh, in local governments. Mm -hmm. um, San Francisco is spending $1.1 billion this coming fiscal year on homelessness. San Francisco is a city of about 860,000. Jacksonville, Florida is a city of about 880,000. That $1.1 million is roughly three quarters of Jacksonville's entire city budget. And you walk around San Francisco, uh, Bill, as you know, and um, <laughs> you'd be hard pressed to think that they're spending $1 on homelessness, much less $1.1 billion. Um, so both uh, both guys, and again, uh, coming at this from very, very different directions, Schellenberger, I think still in some ways a very, very liberal, politically very, very liberal, although when it comes to fiscal issues and getting things done, um, he has really abandoned that, that, uh, that path. Um, so both guys would, um, you know, realize, both realizing this is really a drug abuse issue. Uh, they both would like 
greater latitude um, in terms of getting, uh, in terms of providing capacity in psychiatric hospitals, in terms of providing medical care professionals who specialize in drug abuse. Um, you know, we talked about that, uh, we talked about how, it, you know, it, today hardly, there, you know, there's fewer than 10,000 people in the United States who are in institutions for psychiatric disorders. Right. Um, it, it, you know, many of those people are on the streets and they should be getting psychiatric treatment. Um, one thing that Newsom has done, uh, well, he hasn't really done it, this, the care, the, his CARES bill uh, has gone through one, has gone through one, um, one committee. And this would increase the ability to get treatment for severely ill people uh, to really implore them to get treatment. And when we're, we're talking about people that really have lost the ability to have any reasonable function, that they that they really are living in, uh, they're, they're living in a different universe. And a lot of those people walking the streets in San Francisco and in LA are those people. So what they would do is, you know, if they had a magic wand, they would redirect those investments to mental health services and to providing safe shelters, not 10 homes, but safe shelters. And, um, you know, I love Schellenberger saying, um, you know, shelter, treatment, and then housing, if you show the ability to have some self-responsibility and to be willing to be to play by the rules of the society we live in. Um, so they would really, you know, they would redirect a lot of those dollars away from these kind of housing first programs that, you know, that have failed. Um, you put these folks, you know, you put these folks into a building with, you know, four walls and a roof, and um, that's not solving the problem. They're back out on the streets. Uh, and it's, it's sad because we've been doing this for, you know, we've been avoiding confronting this issue for decades. Um, when I introduced Kylie, I read uh, a couple lines from a report that was 33 years old. And that report read, there are about there are between 100,000 to 250,000 homeless in California. Today we have a similar number of homeless. They have is a complex issue. They have many problems. We spend a lot of money, but there's a lack of leadership. There's a lack of vision, and there are too many services existing under too many roofs. <clears throat> and both of <clears throat> both both of the panelists, Kevin Kiley, Republican Assemblyman Michael Schellenberger left-leaning Democratic author said, yep, this is deja vu all over again. So Lee, how would they get around the nimbyism issue? Because if you want to throw money at San Francisco, Los Angeles, any city in California pretty much would say, I want to build housing for the homeless. I want to build a drug treatment center and so forth. Neighborhoods quickly push back. I remember San Francisco a few years ago, they had a huge fight. They wanted to build a, a, a homeless center along the Embarcadero. And of course, that's prime real estate in San Francisco. No. So businesses, but also the beautiful people in San Francisco push back saying, no, we don't want to sully um, our very nice strip of the town with that. So how, how would you do this, given that just people, it's almost, it was, it's kind of similar to like building a prison in California, Lee, or something which we haven't done since Ronald Reagan's presidency, building an oil refinery, just good idea, but nobody wants it to, nobody wants to have to look at it. Yeah, yeah. So it's, we didn't have time to get into the issue of um, where do we do this, but there's a reality that, not everybody who wants to live on the California beaches gets to live on California, California beaches. A lot of people love to live on the California beach. Um, it's just not feasible. So this means understanding that the fiscal realities of treating these individuals means going somewhere other than San Francisco um, or Mountain View or the beaches of Orange County or La Jolla mm -hmm. or, um, or Beverly Hills. This means, and, and this is not really for social issues, this means finding places where land is relatively inexpensive and mm -hmm. where building can take place and construction costs aren't gonna require having a $150 an hour plumber, you know, build out the bathrooms. Um, and Schellenberger did talk about this. Interestingly yeah. enough, the former progressive, uh, not a trained economist, but he understands just as a common sense point of view, 
know, there's 20,000 people that are homeless in San Francisco. Um, no, we can't house all of them in San Francisco. We can't treat all of them in San Francisco. And when you look at California, um, California is remarkably non-dense state outside of coastal California in the area around Sacramento. California is pretty empty. Um, there's no reason why we can't develop other aspects of California. So to get back to your question about NIMBYism, um, California is going to have to start, if California wants to expand, um, California needs to build in areas that are relatively sparsely populated. And this is, I think this is the only realistic solution to what has been um, an intractable political problem for decades. But um, but the solution is there and the solution is one that's that's pretty economical and that will face relatively little political resistance um, rather than saying, you know what, you know, hey, we're going to go to the Embarcadero and we're going to build an, uh, we're going to build a homeless treat- treatment center and spend $400 million doing it. Yeah, it's also kind of interesting uh, carrot and stick uh, concept here, Lee, in this regard. Uh, very easy for the state to take a, dare I say, kind of conservative approach and block grant money to the counties and cities to deal with homelessness, much the way welfare reform is dealt with in the 1990s. But you give the money away to the counties and cities, and they're at the mercy of them you know, doing the right thing and hoping they come through. And this is where nimbyism becomes a problem. So I think the state needs to be thinking about what sort of you know, strings it attaches to the money it gives away in terms of progress and in terms of what we've seen results, just not saying San Francisco, do what you want to do in Los Angeles and so forth. No, but you got to, you have to show it's a worthy investment that you're actually treating the problem because, you know, it seems to me, Lee, you have a, you have a growing homelessness problem in Los Angeles, if I'm not mistaken, but a chronic problem in San Francisco where the population doesn't change that much. It's just sort of embedded year in and year out, but just kind of like having a bad cough, it just won't go away. Yeah, it's Bill, you're absolutely right. It's not a dollars issue. I mean, we <clears throat> we're throwing more than enough dollars at the problem. It's an accountability issue. And um, you know, Kylie is one of um, well, I was gonna say a handful of Republican state legislators, and there's really not many more than a handful of Republican state legislators who put together a set of legisla- uh, legislation that's, you know, that's sitting there um, within the state assembly and the state senate called ACT. And ACT stands for Accountability, Compassion, and Treatment. And a set of, it's a set of uh, bills that would mandate uh, audits for how dollars are spent. It would repurpose funding for psychiatric treatment. Um, it would require cities and counties to show that they're making progress. And again, all stuff that um, there's completely common sense. Um, you know, you have a workman out to your house uh, before you pay him, <laughs> you know, the, the leaky faucet is fixed or the leak or the leak in the roof is fixed. I mean, you know, it's just purely, it's purely common sense. And, um, you know, Bill, you mentioned the budget uh, and we are spending 50% more in fiscal year 22-23 than we did two years ago in fiscal year 2021. So fiscal year 2021, the budget was 200 billion, now it's 300 billion. So where does that money go? Um, and there were a number of there were a number of questions from the audience saying, hey, you know, where where are my tax dollars going? Where did this 17 billion go? And Bill, you know, um, following that conversation we had yesterday, uh, I thought, okay, health and human services um, is the biggest budget item in the state's budget. It takes up over one third. It takes up a little over $100 billion. And Medi-Cal is a big chunk of health and human services. So, you know, where does that $100 billion go? So, Bill, I, I, uh, I simply typed into Google, Medi-Cal failures audit. I, tap, I typed in those three terms. And, and Medi-Cal is a big part of health and human services. Here is what comes up <clears throat> on the first page. And there are 172 million hits. December 2011, LA Times, um, state audit false state health officials on Medi-Cal oversight. LA Times 2015, state audit shows Medi-Cal patients do not have adequate access to doctors 
Medi-Cal provider directories with riddled, were, were riddled with errors and grossly out of date. 2019, California State Auditor Elaine Howell and Bill, we're going to miss we're going to miss Elaine Howell now that she is uh, now that she is retired. California Auditor blasts Medi-Cal overseer for failing patients. 2015, state has failed to ensure Medi-Cal patients have adequate health care. Let's fast forward. If you think this uh, goes ad infinitum, you do. Uh, you're right. 2018, state auditor. <clears throat> this report presents the results of our high-risk audit concerning $4 billion in questionable Medi-Cal payments that the Department of Healthcare Services made over the last three years because it fails to ensure gross discrepancies between county databases and state databases. <clears throat> so again, we get back to the idea of accountability and you don't get a budget unless you can show progress. Uh, and Kylie, uh, you know, when I asked Kylie, I said, <clears throat> among your colleagues in the Senate and among Democrats, and I brought up Phil Ting. Phil Ting is, the, um, is a prominent Democrat. Uh, and Phil Ting was quoted two days as saying, we spent billions on homelessness, yet I don't. Yet it's it doesn't appear we have made any progress. I said, among among Democrats, is there any sentiment for accountability and trying to track where dollars go and rewarding rewarding agencies that do a good job? And he, you know, he just laughed. Yeah, he just laughed. I mean, not not laughing at me, but laughing at the idea that his colleagues would have any concern about accountability. And we go back to the idea that this is not partisan. Accountability is not a partisan, accountability is not a partisan issue. <clears throat> um, you know, I mean, uh, as a kid, I remember Jimmy Carter is president being lambasted for his uh, performance. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, today I wish, God, Jimmy Carter had the idea about zero based budgeting. You show what you accomplished last year. And then we'll figure out your budget for this year. And if you're yep. efficient and you're moving the needle, okay, then we'll make an investment on what you're doing. You know, I mean, I would love to have a Jimmy Carter type person within the state assembly uh, among those Democrats. So it is just common sense issues. This is not partisan at all. And I really wish the Democratic Party would stop making this about Donald Trump and start looking in the mirror and asking themselves, you know, we shouldn't be wasting the tax dollars of our constituents, but they do every day. It's it's uh, it's maddening. My blood pressure's my blood pressure's rising. I, I better I better stop pontificating. Let me add one thought to your uh, your panel discussion uh, the other day, Lee. Uh, having Michael Schellenberger and Kevin Kiley is interesting in this regard. These are both gentlemen who, uh, yes, they've engaged in politics. Schellenberger ran uh, in the gubernatorial primary. Uh, Kevin Kiley ran in the recall election last fall for governor. Uh, but you look at the numbers, Lee, and this is kind of very sad commentary on California. Uh, so let's go back to the recall. Kiley, who is now an active candidate, he's running in the third district uh, for Congress. Uh, he made the runoff. He'll, he'll be on the November ballot. Kevin Kiley received three and a half percent of the recall vote. Lee, that's 250 55,000 votes. Michael Schellenberger running uh, in the open primary against Gavin Newsom and a whole horde of other people, he got 4.1%, Lee, that's 280,000 votes. So what's to suggest? If you're an intellectual candidate, uh, which is Schellenberger, which is Kylie, they like to talk issues like homelessness, they like to talk education and, you know, big ticket things and not going after just kind of like low-hanging fruit and easy pickings of politics. There seems to be a cap in California of about 300,000 votes. Uh, I hate to think at a state of 39 million people and about 18 or 19 million registered voters that that very small sliver of people actually want to listen to issues. But boy, not a coincidence, they finished very close to each other in terms of their respective results. It's, um, you know, it's so disappointing. Um, Schellenberger told me he had, you know, he, he had raised about a million dollars. So obviously that's, it's, gonna, it's tough to move the needle uh, with a budget that size. Right. He did finish, I think he finished first in Orange County, which is interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, typically a relatively a redder district um, and a district with um, a lot of highly educated people. Um, right. So he's, um, you know, Schellenberger, you know, he's a very bright, very bright fellow. Um, you know, maybe um, I wish 
I wish it was different. Um, maybe too issues oriented. Uh, and it's it's a sad statement about about California voters who seem to be willing to just knee jerk hit the voter button for whomever the Democratic Party machinery comes out and says, here's who I want you to vote for. Lee, he had what I'd call a very disproportionate candidacy in this regard, a million dollars, which just doesn't get you to first base in California. If you're going to run competitively in a primary and try to finish second, you probably need $15 million just to throw a number out there. But what was disproportionate was for very little name recognition and very little money in the bank, he got a lot of media attention just in terms of people writing about him. He was on Joe Rogan's podcast. He was on Bill Barr's HBO show that's on Friday nights. Uh, he was on Fox News a whole bunch of times. He got a ton of free media, but again, he couldn't move the needle. And why is that? Because our primaries in California are really, as you mentioned, driven by the two parties. And this ties back into the homeless problem. It's the two parties at the end of the day, really one party because Democrats control everything. They dominate the homeless conversation and, and that just stifles the whole concept of outside the box thinking. It stifles the whole conversation. And um, and just get back to the point I made a moment ago, um, you know, the the ghost of Donald Trump is crushing California um, from the standpoint that that the Trump card is played 24 seven. And that really prevents really it, 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 it prevents any kind of conversation from taking place. And the California Republican Party um, is going to have to figure out how to, you know, how to respond to that. And thus far, they haven't. There are too few Republican. Um, there are too few Republican legislators that are willing to walk back from Trump. Um, and this is purely from the standpoint. There's purely practical politics standpoint. You cannot win in California unless you have an independent position from Donald Trump. And I'm saying this as a person who um, um, I I strongly supported. Trump's policy to reduce the corporate tax rate, to make it competitive with European countries that brought back a ton of cash, that substantially increased investment, that increased job growth within, uh, within the US. Um, I supported Trump's policies to roll back regulations, um, but he is a figure that's going to continue to squash California. Um, until the Republican Party figures out how they want to how they want to deal with that. Until they do, it will be a one-party state, and we'll continue to get people that just have literally, you know, I, I I don't care if they're Democrat, I don't care if they're Republican. I just want some people with common sense that says, yeah, okay, I got your tax dollars. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna fix some stuff. It is just it's not rocket science. Fix the potholes. Get a better school system. Um, Get some people into mental health treatment that are wandering the streets of San Francisco. But sadly, we keep electing people that refuse to do that. Gentlemen, earlier in this conversation, we talked about uh, the homelessness crisis in San Francisco and uh, the, the level of uh, urban decay and economic depression in San Francisco was the subject of your column in California on your mind this week, Lee. Um, you write that San Francisco was once a city that was considered on the on the on par with Paris, New York, London and Rome. Um, but you but you described that uh, San Francisco has lost 6.5 of its percent of its population in the pandemic year and people are not returning despite restrictions being lifted. Uh, the city's BART, BART subway system it uses down 75 percent. Tourism is down 50 percent below its pre-COVID level and, and its commercial industries are struggling. Lee, what's happening uh, in San Francisco that's not recovering? Again, this is, um, it is a tale of legislative failure, um, of the complete wasting of resources and really damaging people's lives. I mean, it's a perfect storm of, 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 of awfulness. There wasn't, now I'm still, I'm still working on this, but as far as I can tell, there isn't one city in the Rust Belt, um, not Detroit, not Buffalo, not Dayton, Ohio, um, that lost six and a half percent of their population in one year. That San Francisco managed to lose uh, over fifty thousand people, six and a half percent in one year. I mean, that is hard 
to do. I mean, that is really, really difficult to do as the records of Detroit and Buffalo and Dayton, Ohio show us. Um, how did they lose so many people? Jobs haven't come back because San Francisco has a bunch of really, really high skilled, highly educated professionals, the areas of finance and law and consulting and high tech, all of whom can work very productively from their homes or from somewhere else. And they don't really want to come back to San Francisco because San Francisco is not a clean or healthy or safe city anymore. Um, yeah, it used to be mentioned in the same breath as Paris and New York and London when it came to culture and social <clears throat> uh, so, social progress. Um, it was mentioned in that same breath. Um, it's not anymore. It shouldn't be. And without all those with all those professionals sitting at home working, um, all the service sector workers, all the people in restaurants and cafes and bars and nightclubs and hotels, um, they, you know, by definition, they can't work remotely. They need the professionals to be there. They need tourists to be there. Uh, tourism is down almost 50%. Um, the recovery in tourism, recovery in jobs in San Francisco is much worse than any other major city. Um, conventions haven't come back because they're because so much of San Francisco has been taken over really by the drug trade. I mean, it's really an issue, not only of, hey, I don't want to see an addict shooting up on the street corner, um, but it is dangerous. Um, drug dealing is out in the open. It's, I think in the piece I called it, this is the equivalent of Walmart. This is a Walmart of fentanyl and uh, more a Walmart of fentanyl and um, and heroin. Um, so, and this is not just the pandemic. Um, before the pandemic, San Francisco lost two major conventions. One to Las Vegas. I can't recall where the other one. The other was an AMA convention. Um, and so you have physicians and, and <clears throat> it just turns their stomachs to look at San Francisco, see what's going on. San Francisco lost $100 billion in convention revenue from losing those two major conventions. Um, and when you ask yourself, well, why, <laughs> you know, and I, and, and I, and I cited just a statistic, I, I, you know, I did a couple calculations that show that the chance of a person based on an NBC report, the chance of a person being able to walk five city blocks and that encounter human feces is 0.5%. Point, Okay, so about a snowball's chance in hell of not walking San Francisco and having to step over human feces. You know, so again, this is just this common sense. Um, get, you know, clean up San Francisco. Yeah. But the City Board of Supervisors um, would, would, you know, they put a priority over beginning every meeting by noting that, you know, we, we are sitting on unceded lands from the Ohlone tribe. Every board of supervisors meeting begins with that chant. Um, and you have a bunch of supervisors that would, you know, stand in front of a stand in front of a truck before admitting that there is a crime problem in a city which now has perhaps the highest property crime rate in the country. So yeah. again, it's human, it's awful. It's just absolutely awful what's happening. Yeah, you know, the Ohlone tribe, Lee, also uh, used to wander around here on the Stanford campus. And I've always wondered for years why a bunch of Ohlone's have not banded together and somehow managed to build a casino on the campus grounds where you could take money and sell alcohol to 18-year-old kids. Tell me that wouldn't make money hand over fist, but I but I divert. So, yeah, you step, you you touch on something very important here. San Francisco doesn't make things. It's a, it's a laptop economy. It's an intellectual economy in terms of finance and tech. But, you know, there used to be a mint, but they don't, they don't mint money in San Francisco. Francisco, literally, uh, these days, and they just don't build things. So that's one problem. People could, you know, unplug their laptops and go elsewhere and work. I think the second problem, Lee, is that when people did get outside of that uh, city, outside of that bubble, they found they're pretty nice places to live. And I'm not just talking about tech hipsters who relocated to Austin or Miami or some other fertile ground, but I'm talking about young families who left San Francisco and discovered they could go across the East Bay, for example, and buy a house that, lo and behold, had a garage and a backyard. And guess what? A good public school system, by the way, on that note, 
note a shout out to the uh, San Francisco Board of Education, the Board of Education, something we don't do much of this podcast, but they reinstated merit-based education uh, admissions at Lowell High School in San Francisco. They did something sensible. Uh, so the second factor here is people just found better places to live. Uh, this ties in other things, you know, good luck finding a drugstore in San Francisco. We've all seen the footage of drugstores getting getting uh, looted during COVID. Uh, good luck finding a grocery store. But then thirdly, Lee, you touched on this, you know, to the adage, there's no such thing as bad publicity or bad PR. San Francisco has had a ton of bad PR in the last couple of years, and the reputation precedes itself. Uh, this came to mind watching the Golden State Warriors victory parade the other day. Uh, a feel-good moment for the Bay Area. The Warriors basketball team wins the NBA championship. We can all puff out our chest. We Northern Californians, Lee, sorry about that. You're probably a Lakers-Clippers guy, but we can all puff our chest and say the Warriors are wonderful. Four championships in eight years. Get into that argument about dynasty. Anecdotally, I have several friends who go to Warriors games. I've asked them, would you go to the victory parade? And they said, no. And I said, why are you working? They said, no, because we don't want to park our car there and have it get broken into. And this is what happens when reputation precedes itself. So, you know, not long ago, I did an event at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco and was asking about where to park. They have, a, you know, they have a garage to park underneath. No, you can either park in a garage around the corner and take your chances on the walk. You can just park on the Embarcadero. But then the, the organizer said, if you park on the Embarcadero, you might get a window smashed. You live in the city, you tolerate that, but I think a lot of people won't tolerate it. So that's a challenge for San Francisco moving forward. Uh, if I may digress a minute and get into the Warriors here, I wrote a piece for the Washington Post on this. The Warriors embody a lot that's great about professional sports and basketball. It's a very cutting edge franchise. Uh, they play a very pretty band uh, uh, brand of basketball. Uh, they have this very relatable superstar in Steph Curry, who is not a seven foot giant, but he's about six one or six two, I think. Uh, and so little kids relate to him. He's just something more normal to them. Uh, it's a it's a great timeout, as they used to say, one of the advertising campaigns. But Lee and Jonathan, the Warriors, are also a testament to inequality in California in this regard. They number one, they left the city of Oakland, abandoned Oakland, an arena for a shiny arena on the other side of the bay in San Francisco in the uh, Mission Bay District, which is a very biotech-heavy area. The University of California, San Francisco has a campus there. Um, their arena called the Chase Center, uh, I think Lee collected about $2 billion in revenue before it opened up the doors because they hold something like 200 events there a year, basketball games, concerts, all kinds of stuff. So they make money hand over fist. The Warriors pumped that into payroll. They had the biggest payroll in basketball. They probably will next year as well. And if you try going to a Warriors game, uh, the cheapest ticket to a Warriors game, to game one of the series of Boston was about $615. Bucks. Courtside seats were going for about $36,000. This doesn't include, Lee, the $6,000 handling fee that you get for buying that ticket. In other words, you have this wonderful team that everybody can get behind. But you know what? If you're a working class Californian, you can't afford to go to a game. If you do go to a game and put $1,200 on your visa, that's money you're not saving, which is a whole other problem in this economy. So, Lee, here we are once again talking about the rich poor divide in California. Yeah, Bill, you know, the um, when the Warriors played in Oakland, um, the group of people who would go to home games, it's, uh, I mean, it's totally different now. It is just completely different. And you mentioned how expensive it is. Uh, and you mentioned the challenges involved that, yeah, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to drive there. Um, so you're going to Uber there, or Lyft there. Um, and Bill, I'm guessing um, that those $600 seats, I mean, you might as well just stay at home and watch the, you know, and, and watch it on TV <laughs> in terms of the quality of viewing. Um, and, you know, Peter Guber and Joe Lake of the, you know, two of the Warriors owners, I don't know if there's other, I don't know if there's other ownership, they're probably some minority owners, but um, incredibly smart business people. Um, and they also are paying, I think they're paying about $200 million in luxury taxes this year, the way the NBA salary cap works. Right. Um, but yeah, if you're, um, you know, um, if you were Nancy Pelosi, um, uh, you can pay to avoid the worst of California. Um, and if you're, if you're, I mean, I'm sad to say if you're below, if you're below the top 10%, California can be a very, very challenging place to live. Um, and, um, yeah, all those, uh, all those people who lived in Oakland that attended the Warrior Games, um, yeah, they're not crossing the Bay Bridge and going and going to the new stadium because, they cannot afford, you know, they want to, yeah. 
Then when I take the family, um, that's going to be a four-figure uh, event. Um, might as well buy the new 65-inch 4K TV, um, tune in on YouTube TV, and 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 watch it at home. It's um, yeah, but but that's California. Cal- yeah. That's California. It's uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, and um, it's. It's a group of people that are incredibly wealthy that can buy the weather, that can buy the Pacific Ocean, um, and that can support elite causes um, that raise the cost of living for all the people who tend to work for them. Yeah, on that note, there's a very interesting piece in the New York Times the other day on uh, Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, who unfortunately received a DOI not long ago. Uh, He was... I guess he was out at a winery or an event and drinking and got into his Porsche and got pulled over. And you just talk about just, you know, bad luck. I, who knows? Napa's not that large of a place. So maybe he's driving a couple of miles, but the cops caught him. It gets into the rather lavish Napa lifestyle. But a final note on this, Lee, um, one thing about the Warriors Parade, which I thought was just incredibly telling, uh, their parade route was about a mile and a half down Market Street, just a straight line down Market Street, uh, stopping at about 8th and Market, which is a block shy of Twitter. So they didn't get anywhere with an eye shot of the Elon Musk hostages uh, in that building right now. Um, but the one thing in the conversation, Lee, was there was no discussion about what it might do to rush hour traffic in terms of the community getting up there. It was all about, you can take BART to the rally if you want to, there'll be plenty of park if you want to, but nobody said in addition to the normal commute, you know, public transportation is get crushed. And that's because, Lee, as you mentioned, downtown San Francisco is just eerily vacant these days. There's, yeah, there's there's no one there. And it, and it really is it's a dynamic that builds on itself in a very negative way from the standpoint that workers don't come back, restaurants close, they lay off employees, um, you know, storefronts are shuttered and boarded up. And there's that eerie feeling that you're walking in downtown and there's not other people like you walking around. And that's a feeling that pushes more and more people away. So it's a dynamic that builds on itself in a very, very bad way. Um, And what's really disappointing is that I think London Breed understands that there's a problem um, and that it needs to be fixed. And she has a board of supervisors, um, I don't know, half of whom, I think it's more than half, just simply don't have a clue um, as to what it takes to make that city functional again. And um, and it's remarkably selfish because um, they're indirectly really damaging the lives of so many people. Uh, I mean, they're taking away their opportunities to work. They're taking away indirectly the jobs that they had, um, the livelihoods they had, the family life that they had. Um, so, Bill, um, you know what? There's going to be you know, San Francisco is going to shrink again uh, unless change unless change occurs. But when I look at the city group, when I look at the board of supervisors, I don't see that change coming. Bill, you had mentioned earlier um, in this episode uh, that the Hoover Institution and Stanford University had largely largely shut down because of a power outage by PG&E due to a uh, fire 10 miles north in San Mateo County. And this raises a host of issues about how the state is um, prepared to deal with heat waves of this sort, uh, including wildfires, air quality, drought, and access to energy resources in this case. Uh, what, what can the state do to better prepare itself for such conditions? Uh, I think the question is, what could I better do to prepare myself for these conditions <laughs> other than moving elsewhere, which uh, I did in September of 2020. It was deja vu all over again, to borrow the line from Yogi Berra. September 20, we had a really kind of weird series of events. We had a heat wave. We had wildfires. The wind shifted. Smoke poured into Palo Alto. We started having blackouts, and it was just hell. And I actually went to visit family on the East Coast for about a month just to not just clear my head, but really just get away from the smoke that was just uh, poisonous. So what can California do? Um, The question is going to be plain and simple, the grid. And is it going to be able to provide reliable electricity? We've talked about this in this podcast before, but we're in a drought. We're in a horrible, awful drought that's not going away. And, you know, the attention that it draws is what are we going to do about our, you know, are we going to water our lawns? Are we going to golf courses going to stay green and so forth? Um, but the big question with this in terms of what I'm interested in is hydropower. 
dams supply power in California's grid. I think about one fifth of California's electricity comes from hydropower. Uh, if you take away, let's say half of that one fifth, that's 10% we have to make up elsewhere. That means the state's gonna have to do what? It's got to turn to fossil fuels, plain and simple. We can't sit on this dream of renewables taking care of us because we live in the here and the now. So the Newsom administration to the Biden administration are gonna have to face the ugly truth that we need oil, we need coal, and Lee, we also need nuclear, which ties to the question of what's gonna happen to Diablo Canyon and that reactor. Is the governor actually going to push to keep it open or we shut that down and further hamstring our ability to generate electricity? Yeah, again, it just, you know, it kind of boils down to what is common sense government. And, um, you know, for years now, the California's electric grid has been, you know, functionally inadequate. There's no other way to put it, particularly around 5 p.m., 6 p.m., which is when the sun goes down, which means solar power goes away. And that 5 p.m., 6 p.m. window is when people come home and household demand for electricity spikes. And so when we get all those blackouts and brownouts um, and fires caused by power, fires caused by power, um, this is from a deliberate action by the state to become, you know, quote, the green leader. Um, And it comes at a remarkable cost. We are... You know, depending on who you talk to, we might be as much as 3,000 megawatts short of uh, supply as 3,000 megawatts short of demand during the summertime. Um, and that is a deliberate choice made by those, made by state political leaders. Um, and California keeps saying, well, you know, we're going to be carbon free by 2035 or 2040 or 2045. Well, no, we're not. We're not going to be carbon free. And, um, you know, getting back to Michael Schellenberger, um, again, at one time, about as liberal as a person as you would find, really tied to progressive causes. Um, He has a book coming out next year, which says there's absolutely no way, there's no way to rely on non-renewables for energy. And anytime coming in the future, and that nuclear is a fundamental answer to the problem. And um, yeah, absolutely, nuclear is the an answer. Um, and at some level, you know, it's ironic, Bill, because Diablo Canyon is an old reactor. Um, and California has been, um, it has been unwilling to look at new nuclear investments, which is really a shame because new reactors are so much smaller, so much safer, so much more efficient. Um, people think back to Chernobyl or, or what happened in Japan, and those were very, very old reactors. Um, people should be looking to France where 80% of electricity comes from nuclear, um, and there hasn't been one nuclear problem. Um, and you know the new generation of nuclear reactors um, meltdowns don't occur at a few at a couple of hundred, 300, 400 degrees. Meltdowns would occur at something like 3,000 degrees because of technological advances in cooling of reactors that comes from. Well, I won't get into the details, but um, but you know we're just we're shooting ourselves in the foot by not looking at nuclear power investments. Um, and Bill, I'll guarantee you. Um, what are the chances that Gavin Newsom's home and offices don't have a generator in the event that power in the event that power goes out? I suspect that uh, Gavin's homes and offices have backup generators to those generators. I think you're right. So Gavin also owns Teslas, but he also has a state driver. And I imagine the state driver is not driving him around in a Tesla. Uh, I wrote a snarky tweet about this the other day, and I got this wonderful reply uh, from a a Twitter follower. He wrote, quote, you're being told to lower your AC usage on hot days to prevent overwhelming the existing electric grid while simultaneously being told to trade in your gas cars for electric vehicles, which just kind of ties up the whole kind of logic of it. Well, but, you know, one thing we're getting into here, Lee, is a question of changing Californians' behavior. Will you be able to tell Californians to stop using so much electricity, you know, turn down your lights, don't run your dishwasher and, you know, your, and your uh, washing machine to certain hours and so forth. Don't watch so much TV and all of that. And you can do wonderful things with behavior in terms of public relations and pressure. If you ever watch the TV show Mad Men, for example, it's always jarring to see how life was in the early 1960s when the drapers go out and have a picnic and they just throw all their garbage on the park and walk away. Well, we don't litter anymore because we had a, you know, very environmental turnaround in 
this country about picking up after ourselves. Or there's another scene where Betty Draper is about eight months pregnant and she's sitting and smoking a cigarette. Well, my God, you don't see pregnant women smoking cigarettes anymore and that's good. So, you know, you can coax people into different behavior, but Lee tried to change Californians and what I would say is kind of their well, dare I say, selfish behavior. This is part of the California bargain, Lee, and that you spend a lot more money to live in California. And there's certain things that you want to have as a result of living in California. You don't want to be told when you have to turn off your lights and you know how to comply with certain behavior. And so I think if the governor is going to try to try to change people's habits, he's going to have about as much as he, luck as he's had on droughts, where instead of mandating water restrictions, he's trying to encourage people to cut back on water. And guess what? People don't take kindly to that message. No, no. Um, I mean, we're, we're in the 21st century. We're in um, the country's most te technologically advanced state, and we can't keep the lights on. And but we're, want... we're Venezuela. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, great point. We're in Venezuela. But Without the we oil. Call <laughs> we call ourselves California. You know, Bill, I came across a, a quote uh, from a woman named Karen Douglas, who is an energy advisor to Gavin. And um, here's what she had to say. We're in a place now where we have to factor in a new landscape in terms of the challenges in front of us. Right. So what does that mean other than, <laughs> other than hey, we're going green um, and you're going to like it. It reminds me of the, um, if you see, you know, if you've seen the movie Caddyshack, um, you know, even if you don't play golf, funny, funny movie, um, and at one point, um, a fellow says to his caddy, you're getting nothing and you're going to like it. And that's pretty much what's going on here. It's like, nope, you're going to have to suffer with blackouts and brownouts around 5 p.m., 6 p.m. And you know what? You're going to like it. This is, just, this, is, this is the direction we've gone. We're going to be the green leaders. And again, um, it is so much virtue signaling because California on its own does nothing to change, no matter how you feel about carbon emissions and climate change, however you want to put it, California on its own cannot change carbon emissions. It's a global issue. California is simply too small. It makes absolutely no sense for California to, quote, take the lead in green, other than just to pat ourselves on the back. And again, if you're Nancy Pelosi, um, or if you're a billionaire who is invested in this, you get to, you get to feel good at night by saying, gosh, isn't it great to, lead, to live in the state that is taking the lead in going green? So if you're wealthy in California, Lee, there is an alternative here, and that's to bug out for the summer and go to Montana. And boy, don't mention the word California in certain parts of Montana, like around Bozeman or Idaho or Wyoming and get away from this. But most Californians don't have that kind of money and they have to stay here and work. So I just, I'm not sure the solution is, but I do think that the state has to take a more serious look at oil. And I've been kind of obsessing over this lately because um, President Biden is obviously beating up on oil companies. Now the legislature in Sacramento is after them as well. And they want to get into price gouging hearings. But one thing that stands out is the refining capacity in California. I looked this up the other day. The last refinery that we opened in California was, I believe, 1982, the second year of the Reagan presidency. Um, and again, number one, good luck getting one built. I know there are people who are contend will not get a refinery built in this country anytime soon, much like nuclear reactors. But, you know, you need more supply to meet the demand in California. And the same thing for electricity. I'm just not sure if this governor and this administration with its mindset are able to meet the challenge. Gentlemen, I'd like to conclude this podcast by talking about California's effect on national politics again. Uh, President Obama's chief strategist, David Axelrod, told the New York Times this week that if President Biden were to bow out of the 2024 election, um, Gavin Newsom might be the strongest, uh, the Democrats' strongest choice. Axelrod said, if the president were not to run, it's hard to imagine that Newsom would be sorely tempted to enter the race. Newsom is young and politically muscular, which may be just what the market will be seeking post-Biden. Uh, Bill, this dovetails with your California on your mind column this week uh, of why Gavin Newsom has joined Donald Trump's social media platform, Truth Social. Is Newsom simply being a good Democrat by extolling progressive virtues and uh, trolling the former president and standing up and encountering threats to the nation posed by Trumpism, or is he trying to genuinely raise his national profile for the next presidential election? 
the answer might be C, A and B, both. Um, he's being a good Democrat in this regard. Uh, you have a president who is struggling to be kind about it. His approval number is in the 30s. Uh, the economy is bad. He has the opposite of the Midas touch, and his party has finally welcomed to the fact that he is 79 going on 80 and just not a very vigorous president, one who lends much confidence. So enter you know into that vacuum a younger Democrat, Gavin Newsom, is 57 years old, I believe, or 55 years old right now. And uh, he's very telegenic and has a very strong voice. And so he is stepping in. So what he did was he joined Donald Trump's social media site, of all things, uh, Truth Social, as it's called. And uh, he's not doing this for followers, because I think Truth Social has something like 500,000 people on it total. Um, versus 20 million for Twitter. I think Newsom has 2 million Twitter followers. He has about 10,000 people following him on the Trump site. What he is doing is he's picking fights with red states. Here's what he said when he first joined it. Quote, I joined to ask fellow truth seekers why America has a red state murder problem. Eight out of 10 states with the highest murder rates happen to be red states, he said. Uh, he also challenged truth social members by claiming California leads the nation in economic growth. Anti-abortion states experience the highest COVID-19 death rates. In other words, to be very crude about this, blue states rule, red states suck. Um, so why is Newsom doing this? Yes, he's stepping in for his party, but he knows at some level. I know he denies the presidential thing, but he knows that what this does is it starts speculation like crazy. There was an incredible fawning piece of the Atlantic about how what a wonderful, smart guy he is. And boy, would he be great presidential timber. His David Axelrod uh, echoing that, as you mentioned. So it puts him into what's called the Battle of the Great Mention, where you don't actually run for president, but people mention you as a possible Democratic candidate. Here, I'm going to throw a very big dash of cold water on this in two respects. One, actually three respects. First of all, let's talk timing. Right now, Newsom's a hot commodity. Let's revisit California's economy, Lee, in about six to eight months from now when the market goes down, the recession is in, and California's surplus, perhaps the state is incredibly, if not running a, a deficit, its surplus is minimal. In other words, you could easily go from $100 million surplus to bust overnight given this economy. Secondly, he has to get around the rock that is Kamala Harris, and she's a rock in terms of dragging down Democrats, but she's also a rock in terms of impediment to Newsom's aspirations. She's a fellow Californian, is a sitting vice president. There's a lot of loyalty there to the president, and sitting vice presidents tend to have pretty commanding positions within their party. So Newsom would have to figure out a way to run without being seen as a backstabber opportunist. And then thirdly, Lee and Jonathan, how does he sell California to the rest of America? I know publications like The Atlantic swoon over Newsom with his futuristic talk, but you know the rest of America is not necessarily EVs and Whole Food and you know a lot of CRT. It's a very different structure. And so I think Newsom would be very hard pressed to collect 270 electoral votes in this current environment. So um, I salute him for standing up for his party, but I just think that the Gavin Newsom boomlet is just right now. Not, not quite not quite practical. I think it's just it's it's really what the media want in terms of they want to find a Democrat who will fight. Lee. You know, Gavin is a guy he Gavin is a guy who's he's got the gift to gab. I mean, personally I don't find it all that effective, but he just he loves to talk. Mm. And um I feel like saying to Gavin is I mean it's what I say to my youngest son at night. I you know, hey, you know what? Clear the table, put the dishes in the dishwasher before you go out and have fun. Feel like telling Gavin, why don't you solve some California problems before you start going on social media sites and yelling at Trump? Um, I mean, you know, stay in your lane, do what your constituents have elected you to do: govern, fix California's problems. Yeah. Um, and Bill, I I get scared when I look at the political landscape um, of Democrats in 2024 because personally, um, I don't think. Biden will be, even if he chooses to run, I, I, I can't imagine he will. I mean, yeah. you know, he's, he says he will, and of course he has to say he will at this point. But his approval rating, um, at least on the 538 website, it is lower than any sitting president since Harry Truman. Um, it is lower than Trump's uh, at the same number of days in the presidency. And of course, one reason Trump's approval rating was so bad is that you know, there's five or 10% of people who would just say, I disapprove because I can't stand the guy. Right. Um, so he is in, you know, the low 39 area. Kamala um, is sort of a similar rate, right. similar numbers. So, um, yeah, so I can't imagine that Gavin is not salivating and thinking, hey, this is going to be my time. 
Uh, Biden is unelectable. Uh, I view Harris as being unelectable. Her negatives are just so pervasive. Uh, positives are few. Um, and if you look, you know, I look around to see, are there any moderate Democrats out there um, who would be in the age range and have the profile that could be electable? I know you look at moderate Democrats, there's uh, uh, Kirsten Sinema from Arizona. Um, she would be tarred and feathered by the progressives like AOC. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Manchin is uh, 70-ish. Um, and he would also be tarred and feathered by progressives. Um, so I kind of think that Gavin is just, he is sort of thinking, hey, I'm a major leaguer and I'm gonna go up there and I'm gonna go against Trump and I'm gonna knock the ball out of the park. Um, and I don't think he will. He is, his agenda is one that's not gonna play well, all that well outside of California and New York in Massachusetts, um, maybe Minnesota, maybe Maryland, um, but the South and Texas and the Midwest are not gonna take kindly to, essentially to a guy that has failed. I mean, he's his governorship is one in which there's just lots and lots of failures, despite the fact that he keeps getting reelected. Yeah, Lee, you mentioned earlier in the podcast, the ghost of Donald Trump. Few people have fed off of Donald Trump like Gavin Newsom. He is kind of the remora to the shark that is Trump in this regard. When Trump was in office, Newsom rarely picked a chance to get into any kind of, you know, you know, spitting match with Trump over an issue. He loved having Trump as a foil. Newsom is uh, up against it in recall. What does he do? He evokes Donald Trump. He likens Larry Elder to Donald Trump. Problem solved. And here he is now on Trump's website, uh, picking fights with red state America, again, to raise his own profile. So, you know, Donald Trump is incredibly beneficial to to Gavin Newsom as one guy doesn't want Trump to go away. Um, But, you know, one of the reasons why I wrote that column was what you touched on and that there are other things the governor should be doing, sticking to his day job and not obsessing over red state America. Uh, The budget is coming out next week. And what's going to happen on gasoline taxes? California is going to see an increase in its gasoline tax. It's not it's not a whopping uh, increase in terms of hitting your pocket. I think it's about a three cent increase overall from about 51 cents to 54 cents. So let's say you put 15 gallons in the tank, that's 45 cents. You're not going to really fill that. But it's a symbolism of this, Lee and Jonathan. Newsom said that he wanted to freeze the gasoline tax, just as President Biden wants to freeze the federal gas tax. He didn't fight the legislature on this. The legislature had two words for him, and they were, were not Merry Christmas. And so this went away, went away. And now we have this debate over what to do in terms of refund to California taxpayers. Remember, the governor wanted to give all of us you know, who own cars $400 a piece for our cars. Legislature said, no, we're going to do this based on income. And if you make under $125,000, you'll get money back. If you make over $125,000, dollars, you're out of luck. Where is Newsom on this topic? Why isn't he using his social media and his soapbox and others to fight for his ideas? Instead, he's spending his time getting into matches with red states over, over issues that just aren't germane to California, which gets to a third issue here. Let's move forward to 2024. Gavin Newsom somehow becomes a Democratic nominee. Let's say Ron DeSantis is the Republican nominee. So here you have the governor of California versus the governor of Florida. Newsom's going to bash Florida as hell on earth, just kind of Dante's worst divisions. And what's DeSantis going to say? Gee, if it's that bad, Governor Newsom, why are people leaving your state and coming to mind? And I think that's kind of the end of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, Trump and red states in general are just living rent-free in Gavin's head. And it takes time away from him dealing with being governor of California. And ironically, um, because we're a one-party state, no one is demanding, hey, Gavin, you know, <laughs> why are you spending time on social media talking about Republican talking points? And why aren't you dealing with something like energy costs? Yeah. And the fact that, um, you know, the fact that he's got a supermajority in the state legislature and he can't get them to implement or get close to implementing what he wants doesn't sound like a very effective leader. Um And you know that DeSantis, I mean, you know that every ad that runs, if it was Newsom versus DeSantis, every ad's going to show the addicts on the streets of San Francisco, the tent cities, um, the cost of gasoline, which, you know, I drove... uh, I, this morning, I drove my youngest son to his, uh, to his, more, to, you know, to his half day job, 749 a gallon. Um, you know, people are wondering, why is it, why is this happening? And why aren't my elected officials doing something about it? And those are questions that are going unanswered, sadly enough, but 
this is California where where questions go unanswered and where people who are elected to do a job prefer to go on social media and talk about Donald Trump. Well, the next time we're recommitting a couple of weeks, we'll have an answer as to what he did on the budget. What, if anything, they're doing on that tax rebate. Well, this has been very interesting and timely analysis. Thank you, gentlemen, for your time. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Jess. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. If you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at Bill Whalen CA. And Leo Hanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Leah underscore Ohanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship analysis from our fellows. Also check out California On Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Mavroidis sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.